right. Thanks so much. While we kind of reset things, we don't have the luxury of a state or a big fancy screen like Pastor Scott got last week. And then he went down to West Des Moines to preach uh, this weekend with Pastor John. So we're all just shuffling around. And um, can we just, again, give a big hand to all of our volunteers who they were sweating the, the rain for about two hours and now we're all sweating the sun. But um, this is great. Man, I'm so glad to be here talking with you all. Are we good? I don't want to fall off or make you guys fall off. Don't fall, Pete. Don't fall. All right. Sorry. Sorry. Excuse me. Sorry. You're all awesome. Thank you. Let me pray while we kind of get started here. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful once again for how blessed we are to, to simply gather together and worship. Uh, we're thankful for the rain holding off. We are grateful for the capability to do this, and we are just glad to be here in your presence today. So, Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. I pray that you would use um, what little I have today to preach a message of hope and of healing to each one of us to speak into our hearts exactly what we need to hear today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yeah, like I said, it was great to get to worship here last Saturday. I'm glad you're back or maybe here for the first time in person. I'm Eli. I'm the discipleship minister here in our Ankeny campus. And I'm joined today by Ashley Lentz, who is our connections coordinator and just finished seminary training to be a pastor. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> How does it feel to be uh, done with, with graduate school? Feels so good. For, for now, right? Yeah. Yeah, someday I might go back. Yeah, that's what we all say. <laughs> yeah, so that's exciting. I'm glad that we get to talk together to you today. Um, we've done plenty of teaching together throughout this whole season, but we've been doing it mostly online. So I'm really glad to see that you're not just somebody who lives inside of my screens. <laughs> and, and those screens, man, where would we be? Where would we be in this strange time without the screens? Um, if you've been following along with our church since early March, you know that we've tried our best to put life-giving content out to you through social media. Um, we've tried to really flood screens all around to, with spiritually uplifting and nourishing content because that was the only way we could communicate with you for a while. So, you know, where would we be without these tools that have made this pandemic at least somewhat bearable? and even useful at times, but at the same time, I wonder who else is ready to throw their phone into the Des Moines River? <laughs> I, I'm ready. I know I am. I think one of the most annoying things, not the most annoying, but one of the things I discovered that was at least unpleasant over the last few months is that terrible reminder that pops up every week reminding you that your screen time went up a thousand percent last week. It's like, come on, man, whose side are you on? I know. I know what I'm looking at. Facebook can't scroll itself. YouTube isn't going to watch itself. Cut me some slack. Now, if I'm honest, which I try to be, and we even sang a song just here in this offering that had the line in it that, that I'm not afraid of my weaknesses. So we're going to talk about that today. But I can confess to you that over the last couple of months, I have, have looked at things on my screen that were not as uplifting or as life-giving as the stuff that Hope has been putting out there. I've read too many unhelpful opinion pieces to count on everything from the coronavirus to racial injustice. And don't get me wrong, some have been very helpful, but others not so much. I've consumed content that was neither good nor bad, but instead just the lowest common denominator memes and, and garbage that wasn't, you know, doesn't even need to be aware of. And I wasn't even aware that I was doing it. Just wasting time scrolling and scrolling. One of the more interesting articles I ran across was research that was done by Harvard Medical School. And it found a direct link between screen time and dopamine. 
Dopamine is the chemical in your brain, and it releases as a motivator when we do something that's good for us. So when you exercise your body, your brain releases dopamine because it's good. And your brain is reinforcing a good behavior, helping you feel good about yourself. It's the same whenever you have a successful social interaction. So it's, it's likely that each one of us here has a little bit of dopamine going because this is a healthy behavior, and our brains want to try to reinforce that. However, as we humans tend to do, we have found a way to trick our brains into releasing this dopamine during times when we aren't necessarily doing something that is good for us. Dopamine is released anytime an addiction is catered to. So if your body is addicted to drugs or alcohol, your brain will adapt to release dopamine when you indulge that addiction. And Harvard and other medical research institutes have found that the same dopamine response happens when you look at your smartphone, even when you take it out of your pocket. Without realizing that you're doing it, your brain will release a little bit of dopamine when you open that app because we're becoming addicted to our screens. And it turns out what we look at has a significant effect on how we are doing. And this was true in Jesus' day. Jesus taught on our viewing habits and our sight. And this is what he says in Matthew 6.22, Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your whole body. And when your eye is healthy... Your whole body is filled with light. What's true today was true back then. Jesus is telling us that whatever you're looking at will either bring life to your person or it will bring decay. It's just like your mouth. If you eat healthy things like vegetables and fruits, your body will be nourished. But three months of Twinkies, well, that'll, that'll do something different. What you're looking at is really no different. No matter how harmless you think your viewing habits might be, Jesus here is telling us that our sight plays a significant role in our spiritual health. Now, this isn't a sermon that's meant to chastise you for your viewing habits. And like I said, I need to hear this too. We are all in the same boat. This sermon, I think, has more to do, and the parable that we're looking at, or the, the instance of Jesus' healing that we're looking at, has more to do with the nature of sight itself. I would challenge you to wrestle with the subtle difference today, the subtle difference between looking at something and seeing something. The difference between just looking at something and really seeing it. In our reading today, we looked at an instance of a healing Jesus performed in Luke 18.35. In this whole month of June, as we've continued our 2020 sermon series, All Eyes on Jesus, we've been exploring Jesus as our healer. And in Luke 18, it appears, it appears as if Jesus is simply restoring the physical sight to a blind man. He's traveling near the city of Jericho, and a blind man pursues Jesus, chases him down to get healing, even though the crowd is trying to keep him away. But there are some clues here. There's something interesting the way that Luke writes this in his gospel that makes it seem as though this man is physically, even though he's unable physically to look at anything, he might actually see more than anyone. So Ashley, you, you finished seminary not long ago, and I feel like you've been in this theological space longer than I have. So what, tell us, what did this blind man see that others, and maybe we just can't? Yeah, I'm so excited about this. I got to stand because I'm going to get excited. Um, open your Bibles or your Bible apps. You know, we don't have a screen, so this is going to help if you can follow along. Now, fair warning, we're going to get nerdy, and I'm super excited about it. So my challenge to you is to stick with me because the nerdy things that we're going to dive into make all the difference in how we understand this passage. So what did the blind man see? And I'm going to keep saying that, and Eli is going to say it, and it's such an oxymoron. 
What did the blind man see? But in order to understand the context that we're in and how this blind man actually sees Jesus in such a significant way, we need to back up a couple verses. Luke strategically puts this story of the healing right after something that teaches us a lot. So open your Bibles. Like I said, I've got my Bible app today because, you know, we're outside and it's really hot and didn't want wind turning my pages. So I got my Bible app. Open up to Luke 18. I'm going to start in verse 31. Our Bible reading started in verse 35. So we're just backing up a couple verses. And this is going to set the stage for what we learn about Jesus and what this blind man actually sees in him. All right, starting at Luke 18, verse 31. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem, where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans, and he will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him, but on the third day he will rise again. But the disciples didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. Interesting, Jesus' closest disciples, his closest followers, who can all physically see him, don't understand what he's talking about. This is the third instance in Luke where Jesus predicts his death, and his disciples are still clueless. Thus, such sets the stage for our blind beggar. Okay, so we're going to keep reading. Verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. Jericho was a normal town on the way to Jerusalem. So we know Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem as a king. He's ready to walk into his crucifixion. He's preparing his disciples who are clueless. And here's where we meet the blind man. Luke gives us a specific location. This location's probably important. It's not out of the ordinary. Like I said, it's right on the way to Jerusalem. But if we remember Jericho... From somewhere else in our Bible, the Old Testament, it's a really significant historical place. So let's think all the way back. I told you we were going to get nerdy, so stick with me. Okay, let's think all the way back to the Old Testament, book of Joshua. The Israelites are on their way to the promised land, and they have to defeat some cities, defeat some armies to get there. And Jericho is one of those towns on their way to Canaan. But Jericho's a fortified city. They can't see around the walls. So the Israelites send spies into Jericho. And there's a woman named Rahab. Everyone say Rahab. Rahab. Yes, there's a woman named Rahab. We don't have a screen, so it's just going to require a lot more audience interaction. Okay, so there's a woman named Rahab in Jericho. And she houses these spies, these Israelite spies, and she protects them. And she says it's because her faith in the Israelite God that she's willing to help these spies. Now, we know that Jericho falls, the Israelites defeat Jericho, and everyone goes on their merry way toward the promised land. But Rahab is so significant. The Bible tells us that she's a prostitute, which was not significant. She was a woman of no wealth, no power, no status. She was a nobody in her day. And it's Rahab who housed these spies. And she's so important in this story of the Israelites that she's mentioned, we're jumping back to the New Testament, she's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. It's the hall of faith. Her faith is so great that the author of Hebrews says, here's someone you can model your faith after, Rahab the prostitute. But even more significant than that, in Matthew chapter 1, Rahab, the woman, is listed in the genealogy 
of Jesus Christ. That's significant for two reasons. Number one, she's a woman, and she would never have been listed in a genealogy in this day and age, and she is. And number two, it's not just any lineage. It's not just any family tree. We're talking the family tree of Jesus. So if it hadn't been for Rahab back in Jericho, who knows if Jesus would have been born. She's smack dab in the middle of his family line, according to Matthew 1. So that's super cool. Okay, told you we were getting nerdy. Are you still with me? We're with you. Yes, okay. We're all melting a little bit, and it's okay. I'm just embracing it. Okay, so Jericho, Rahab, why are we talking about the Old Testament, Rahab, all of these things? Well, it's going to tie into the next thing that Luke tells us in this story. The blind beggar, I'm in verse 38, began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The people told him, be quiet, but he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. This title, son of David, ties directly into what we were just talking about. Son of David is not an uncommon title for Jesus. It's not an uncommon name. Matthew and Mark also uh, write stories where Jesus is called son of David. But here, within this context, it's telling us something very specific about what this blind man knows about Jesus, about what he sees that Jesus' closest disciples can't even see. Here's my example. My maiden name is Peterson. Married name is Lentz. Maiden name is Peterson. I grew up having my dad calling me Ashley Pete all the time. It was my nickname, Ashley Pete, Ashley Pete, Ashley Pete, Ashley Pete. Now, I've been married over three years, and he still calls me Ashley Pete. (laughs) sometimes acknowledging that that's no longer my last name, but sometimes he does it like not even realizing that he did it. For me, it's nostalgic. I don't mind. I think it's great. This is what this blind beggar does when he calls Jesus son of David. Peterson links me to a long line of Petersons on my dad's side. It's a generational thing. There's a genealogy there. And when this blind beggar calls Jesus son of David, He's linking him to this very specific family line. This is significant because this is the line that the Messiah was coming from. We know from 2 Samuel, back in the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with King David and he says, I will establish my kingdom on earth forever through you. It will be through your line that a king will rule forever, will rule the Israelite people, the world forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. It's a prophecy about Jesus. And so what this blind beggar sees when he calls Jesus son of David is the true Messiah. Something the disciples a few verses before who can physically see Jesus have not grasped yet. The blind beggar knows so much more about this Messiah, this king that, G- that God was sending, that he calls him son of David. Oh, it just gives me shivers. I love it. Even in, the, even in the heat, it gives me shivers. So we keep going. These are two really important facts that we have to understand in order to understand what the blind man is actually seeing. So we keep going. And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Let's pause. Did we not just acknowledge that Jesus is Messiah and the blind man gets it? And yet Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? That seems a little silly to me if Jesus is the son of God, the true Messiah. Don't you think he knew what the blind man wanted? But Jesus asks him anyway. And the blind man's response is incredible. Now, it doesn't seem incredible, but we'll dive into it. Okay, 
Lord, the blind man said, I want to see. Lord, I want to see. This man is asking for healing, but more than just physical healing, he's asking for something so much deeper. And our English translations just kind of miss it. We got to go back to the Greek to figure it out. Normally, I'd put the Greek on the screen and we'd all look at it and go, cool, but we don't have a screen. So crowd participation. All right. Language is very contextual. Here's what I mean. It's arguably the most contextual thing that bonds people together. If I speak English and you speak English, even if we're from different parts of the world, we automatically understand one another. We might not share similar backgrounds. We might not even look the same, but we can converse and have a conversation so that we can begin to understand one another. Now, if I'm speaking English and I'm talking to somebody who's speaking German, we automatically have a disconnect because I don't speak German. So we can't bond through language. Automatically, we don't share similar context because I can't converse with you. Okay, the Bible or the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew, a little bit Aramaic. The New Testament's written in Greek. We speak English and we're reading something that's written in Greek. There's a disconnect. Now the beauty of translation is that I can read that Greek in English and it speaks to my context and that's amazing. What a gift that is from Jesus that we can read the Bible as he wrote it. But it does mean that we can miss itty bitty pieces of context that only the Greek would show us. And that's what's happening right here. So the blind man replies, Lord, I want to see. And before that see verb is an itty bitty word. It's a conjunction. It's pronounced hinna. Everyone say hinna. Hinna, yes. If I was going to spell that in English letters, it would be I-N-A with a silent H on front. So everyone say it again, hinna. Yes, okay, there's an itty bitty conjunction. Normally translated, that would mean the word that. Okay, I don't see that word in my translation or in the various translations I looked up because it doesn't need to be translated. It actually changes the verb. Interesting. I hate uh, like languagey stuff, but this is so cool to me. So if, you, if you've already turned out, turn, tune back in. It's going to get better. Okay, so that itty bitty word, henna, say it again. Henna, yeah, that itty bitty word changes that verb to see from a simple verb, something we do, to a, everybody lean in, to a statement of purpose. Let me say that again. That verb is no longer an action. It is an action, but there's so much more. Hina changes that verb to a statement of purpose. So when this blind man asks Jesus, the blind man who completely acknowledges that Jesus is the one true Messiah, he gets it. When he asks Jesus for healing, he asks for so much more than physical healing. He says, Jesus, I want to see, but in that sight, I want purpose. Lord, heal me completely. Heal me fully so that in my new sight, I have purpose. And Jesus responds to him, all right, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Jesus doesn't say to him, I have healed you. He looks at this blind beggar outside the walls of Jericho, who is an outcast in society, and he says to him, your faith has not only given you physical sight, your faith has completely restored you. 
You now have sight and you have purpose. That's so good. It's, it's right. It's all about purpose and meaning and who God is calling you to be. It's one of my favorite visuals in Jesus's life. In the other gospels, when we meet this blind beggar on the road to Jericho, it says when, he, when Jesus calls him over, he throws his cloak aside to go and find Jesus. Now, this is a poor blind man, and, and that was the only thing he probably owned to throw that aside, just to chase Jesus down, to receive this healing, to meet the one who he saw as the Messiah and to receive what he was seeking. Other healings that Jesus performs that we've read, oftentimes after the person being healed will say, can I follow you? Can I go where you're going? Think of um, the, the, the person who was plagued by demons in, in the region of the Gerasenes. And Jesus says, no, you can't follow me. You need to go back home and tell others what has happened to you. But this person, this blind man who gave away everything, gave up everything to find Jesus, it says that he continued to follow Jesus. He became one of Jesus' disciples. He didn't give up going along his way. He left the crowd while the crowd was looking at Jesus and waiting for physical miracles that would amaze them, that would stun them, kind of like we scroll through the junk on our screens, hoping that we'll be wowed by the next thing. The blind beggar saw Jesus for who he really was. I want to quickly look at a place in Scripture where this is readily apparent, but many find confusing. It gives us a chance to, to see how this subtle difference between looking at something and really seeing something has been at play from the very beginning. And my hope is you'll start to assess your viewing habits in the same way, to shift from looking at things passively to actively seeing things as a part of your God-given purpose. So in Genesis chapter 3, we encounter Eve talking to the serpent. Adam and Eve, the first human beings, were told by God they could eat from any fruit of the Garden of Eden. And already, the biblical writer here is getting at that metaphor between physical nourishment, or the simile between physical nourishment and spiritual nourishment. But they could not eat of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them when they take in that fruit, that death would come to them. So in chapter 3, the serpent is lying to Eve, which is the best weapon that Satan has in his arsenal. Satan deals in lies, he deals in temptations, especially around what we look at and what we consume. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, he says to Eve, Surely you will not die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Surely your eyes will be opened, is the promise that the serpent gives. I think this lie is possibly one of the most convincing things we still, to, still believe today. Let's bring it down to a little bit of a lighter level. These past few months, I have noticed how fast, how much more quickly fads have come and gone. We get bored with this or that thing really quick. And I remember, maybe, maybe you remember this too, it's long in our ancient past, People asking me, have you seen Tiger King yet? Do you guys remember when Tiger King was a thing? Oh, you have to see Tiger King. If you don't, you're missing out. It is so messed up. Hang on. Aren't you my friend? And you want me to watch something that you admit is messed up? So what you're telling me is you want me to see something because I'm missing out. But you're also revealing that it's probably not a thing worth watching. Now, for the record, I haven't seen it. Um, I... I uh, but I found it interesting that for a little while, this strange thing and this, by all accounts, abusive show on television was the thing that people were looking at specifically because of how unhealthy it was. And the reason behind it was a fear of missing out. 
Kids these days have an acronym for that, and I think Ashley, who is our, she's running our young adult, adult podcast, FOMO. FOMO. It's new to me. Yeah. FOMO, fear of missing out. Again, our brains are wired to release a chemical gratifying us for positive social interaction. So when we perceive that other people are seeing something or watching something and we want to relate to them, whether it's something on the news or the next report or the next hit show, but we don't watch that thing, then we feel like we're going to miss out on a social interaction. So we look at things that are unhealthy or even at the very least benign and worthless, not because it's going to nourish us internally or uplift us spiritually, but simply because we don't want to miss out on something that other people are looking at. The servant or the serpent was able to instill in Eve a fear of missing out. There's something out there that you don't know. There's something out there that you don't know that God doesn't want you to have. That's not true. That's not what the condition they were under was, but that's what he convinced her was the case. All you have to do is consume this thing that God told you was bad for you. Now, Adam fell for the same lie, but he's in a tough spot. You see, when people said, oh, you have to watch Tiger King, everyone has seen it. I kind of was a little bit skeptical. I don't think you've asked everyone if they've seen it. Now, when Eve said, try this fruit, everyone's tried it. She was actually telling the truth. I'll give you another minute on that one. Verse 7, after they eat the fruit, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. The writer is doing something interesting again with the difference between looking at and seeing. It doesn't say they gained more insight into the reality of their world. They could already see God face to face. With their physical eyes, they could enjoy his presence more closely than anyone since. They might have been blind to certain things. They might have been, not have been able to look at certain things, but they could really see God. And now, no longer. It says they realized they were naked and they became ashamed. Because of this unhealthy consumption, they began looking at and paying attention to the wrong thing. Instead of seeing God and focusing on him, their focus shifts to the purely physical the self-conscious. And if that's not a direct illustration to the frustration we feel with our social media culture today, I don't know what is. What are you looking at? What are you looking at? And what is it doing to you internally, I wonder? If all you're looking at is causing you to feel self-conscious and ashamed, judgmental and angry, bitter, full of hatred for other people, stop looking at it. Shift your gaze higher. See, really see instead of look. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, in the same sermon, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Do you want to see God the way the blind man could see Jesus when no one else was able to? Are you tired of having what you're looking at beat you up and drag you down? Maybe for some of us, it is time to throw your phone in the river. I don't know. Maybe at least intentionally fast from screens to help your brain chemistry snap back into shape. In that same sermon in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Is there something in your life causing you to feel less than the dearly loved child God says you are? Feel free to get rid of it today. Don't wait. Let this time coming back from this season we're in be a reset to do something different to make a change, not to let bad habits linger. Maybe for some of us, it's time to search for freedom for abhorrent viewing habits like pornography. 
which has now been significantly proven to be on the rise and scientifically proven to alter your brain chemistry in exact same ways as substance abuse. Our Celebrate Recovery Ministry, which meets on Mondays, has groups specifically geared toward helping people find freedom from pornography, from sexual sin. If that's you, please check out Celebrate Recovery on Mondays. It's still online here for at least a couple more weeks, but uh, we'll be coming back to meetings in person soon. Do you need prayer and the presence of God's Spirit to walk alongside you to help you set your eyes on Jesus? We're going to have prayer partners available after the, at this service. They'll just be standing here in the front of the stage. Still socially distant. Can't get around that. Last week, we talked about how we're caring for each other well, and this week, I think we're continuing that same theme. We want to keep caring for each other well. But they'd love to pray with you if you need prayer for this season. So with that, I'd like to invite us to close together. Let's stand together and pray as we get ready to sing our final song. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for this time. And we're grateful for your word, which continues to speak to us through generation after generation, countlessly into the past and forever going forward. God, we cling to your promises in scripture. We cling to the promise that no matter what we're going through, that you know what it's like, that you experience life on this earth through Jesus Christ, and that your Holy Spirit is here to help us, to guide us, to walk alongside us with whatever we're going through. So I pray, God, for, for those of us gathered, for our entire church uh, online, God, these days, that you would be pouring out the, the, the presence of your Holy Spirit to help us see in new ways who you really are, God, and who you're really calling us to be. I pray, God, that you would help each one of us to leave this place no longer passively looking at things that are unhealthy or uh, not worth looking at, God, but that, that we would fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that in our seeing you for who you really are, we'll learn who you've really created us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.